0: Hello, everybody, welcome back to the Dental Practice Heroes podcast. We are gonna do another clinical episode with Dr. Tahir doing of the Colorado Surgical Institute. He is here helping us out, demystifying the clinical things that we are all too scared to touch and we don't know how to do it, but Tahir is here to help us and get us through it and give us some pointers. So how you doing today, Tahir? I'm doing good, man, I'm doing good. Awesome, man, so we're talking today about Ridge preservation, because who doesn't want to preserve that beautiful big ridge we got in our mouth? So for the people that are maybe newer to dentistry, and this just sounds like crazy bone grafting, like we're cutting up someone's hip and putting it in their mouth, what is ridge preservation?
1: Well, A, you make it sound super, super sexy, Paul.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. I have a thing for wrist preservation. I really do. I got this wrist preservation poster.
1: Yeah, it's like the cat hanging from it. Like you can do it. Yes. Like wrist preservation. Yeah.
0: Oh my gosh. Is it? Yeah. How did you saw that before? Okay, cool. Yeah. So
1: basically, all it is is taking the tooth out, bone grafting, and then membrane selection and suture choice. But really, at the end of the day, if we talk about it from a patient perspective first, it's helping them preserve the bone in the area for a future implant. Or just in general, preserving it against future atrophy now granted it will atrophy over time, but the the immediate collapse of the the socket and the the bone and the architecture in that area you're helping the patient from that perspective, but also then from a business perspective, obviously it's good for revenue it's an additional procedure, and the patient is benefiting from the thing also so bridge preservation you can break it down from you know you got your four-wall defects, which are the easier ones, pull the tooth out. There's four walls of bone around it. It's more of those slam dunks. Three-wall gets a little bit more complex. Two-wall, I would say, unless you're experienced, you know, send those ones out. And then the one-wall defect is like, hey, catastrophe type of situation, don't do that. So for today's conversation, we can maybe talk about three-wall and four-wall defects, because that's going to be 90% of the things you guys see in your practice.
0: Yeah. And, and I think a lot of dentists that I hear, and I noticed this with some of my associates that I've had, is that if there's no implant, well, there's no benefit. So like explain, there's still benefit if we're not planning on doing an implant. If we're doing an FPD, I mean, there's still benefit underneath the pontic, but like you mentioned, it's still, we're preserving bone and, and there's nothing wrong with preserving bone. So I think this should be a recommendation for every single extraction minus, of course, I mean, wisdom teeth, is, is that yeah. a recommendation as well?
1: I don't think you need to graft wisdom teeth unless there's like a infection in the site and it's completely blown out the, the distal wall of the second molar. Other than that, if everything is fine, PRP or PRF inside your wisdom teeth is a, is a service, an absolute service to the patients. But bone grafting, I don't think necessarily is indicated on wisdom teeth. But for every other tooth, I think it's a service to the patient because what I found over the 10 years I've been doing this is sometimes the patients aren't ready for it and they don't think financially they can do it. And they'll come in in two years and be like, hey, I'm ready for the implant. And it's like, well, man, if we would have just done that, now you don't need block grafting, You don't need like complex stuff that's going to take 12 weeks to integrate then just to place the implant. So you're, you're leaving the door open for them. And here's the thing, offer the best thing to the patients. On the treatment plan, I'll show extraction or surgical extraction, and then in a phase 2, I'll show all the bone grafting. So it gives the patient the option like, "Hey, I can pull the tooth and live to fight another day and deal with the complications of maybe not having enough bone in the future." But if I choose to add this service on, then I know the price and and a lot of people accept. I'd say close rate on bone grafting is like 60%. So 60% of the people you offer it to are going to do this procedure.
0: So how, how do you offer it? How do you talk it to the patient? How do you explain the benefits? Like, what is the verbiage that you use?
1: Yeah, so oftentimes, I mean, it's not necessarily a hygiene patient unless they come in and you find a failed root canal because usually a patient of the practice, you're going to take care of, like, the urgent stuff more quickly. But so let's say it's in the hygiene department, you see the failed endo, you guys don't want to retreat it. So, yeah, you're going to give them the option and say, like, look, I equate it to we are filling up a pothole in the road. This is all bone grafting is doing is filling the pothole and it leaves the door open for a future implant. And even if we were to place your implant at the same time, because we teach immediate implants also, I'm still going to bone graft around it. So either way you're getting the bone graft. If you see them as a limited, we offer it to all limiteds. Now sometimes limiteds come in and they need like four extractions. I might only bill them for two of the the bone grafts just because I kind of feel bad sometimes, but you know, show them all four. They say no, say, hey, once I open the bone graft, I use it all anyways. So if you want, I'll do all four. You can pay for two. But for me, I, I always say, hey, I have a neurotic brain. I want it to be perfect. Can I graft all four for you? And that way, you're, you're doing a good service for the patients. And I tell them, like, look, this is leaving the door open. It is in your best interest to do it. But I understand, like, whatever you decide to do, at least you have the knowledge of why you should do it or why you're choosing not to do it. And I leave it up to them.
0: But Dr. Dune. What if I don't do the bone graft? What's going to happen to me?
1: So two things can happen. One, we let the site heal. It could take six to eight months, and you have enough bone for the implant. Or in six to eight months, you don't, and then you need a more complex bone graft that's five times as expensive, and it takes twice as long to place the implant. But at the end of the day, with biology, there's never and never. There's never and always. I can look into my crystal ball and project out into the future, and my job is to manage your expectations and tell you what you're going to be encountering into the future. And these are the potential scenarios if you don't choose to do it right now. Now, you don't have to, but if it was me or a family member, I would absolutely recommend it.
0: Yeah, you nailed that.
1: I've said it a few thousand times.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it's like, it's like this is the shtick, man. This is my line. But you found uh-huh. it. It works. It sounds great, man. So uh, let's, let's
1: get to the nitty gritty. What do we do? Okay, so from a medical history perspective, the big ones are, is it's going to be head and neck radiation. It's going to be oral tobacco products. It's going to be recreational drug use. It's going to be SSRIs. So SSRIs are antidepressants. What we're finding, especially through COVID, man, I saw an uptick in these freak catastrophic failures, even on people I've done implants and bone grafting on before. And I was just like, dude, like what is going on? Like, what are you taking right now? Like hands down, every freak catastrophic failure was SSRIs. So make sure SSRIs, do not take the patient off an SSRI. You have to talk to their physician. And my line is, I never change another doctor's medications, and I would expect that they don't change mine. We are going to have to talk to them before we move forward. And then IV bisphosphonates and oral bisphosphonates. If you're being ultra cautious nowadays, I'm doing more oral bisphosphonate cases, but in the beginning, refer those out until you got a couple hundred reps on these things. So you can kind of see how to manage the cases. We give them the option of oral sedation, or I guess no sedation, oral sedation, IV sedation, and like anesthesia, propofol sedation, but it's whatever you have available within the practice. And once the med history is out of the way, they're otherwise a very healthy person and a good candidate for the procedure. I tell them like, look, tooth is coming out. We're going to bone graft. We're going to put PRP over the top. I don't say PRP. I say your own growth factors. If you have a centrifuge and you guys do that in your practice, and I recommend training your team because all my assistants will actually do the blood draws for me now, and it's already spinning for 17 minutes in the centrifuge. Everyone has different settings based on how you learn it. I do 17 minutes, and my team is getting everything prepped. So by the time I walk in the room, the PRP is already spinning. They don't pour out the bone graft until I extract the tooth, and I tell them how much to pour out just because, you know, if they pour out two cc's and you only need 0.5, you're just wasting money. But I'll go in, pull the tooth. We all know that. But when you're grafting, you have to cure everything. You have to cure it out super thoroughly. I think there's something called the RAP, the Regional Acceleratory Process, where when you scrape the cortical bone, it's going to help stimulate growth factors from within the socket. But you have to really scrape that stuff out the maxillary molar and the infection has kind of penetrated the antral floor or that sinus floor, be careful because you don't want to pop into the sinus floor. You know, if you do, it happens. Just take a little collar plug or some PRP and put it up there and then follow with your graft so your graft isn't leaking within the sinus or getting sucked in with that negative pressure within the sinus. But again, case selection is huge. Be cautious in those areas, but clean it out thoroughly. I'm also going to release and stick my curette or my periosteal and slide it along the buckle and release the buckle tissue. I'm also going to do the same thing to the palate. A super common mistake is you don't lift the, the tissue away from the palatal bone. So when you go to tuck your membranes in, they'll bunch up and fold. And it's such a pain in the butt to deal with that. So make sure you're doing adequate tissue release from the beginning because once all the graft is in place and then you try to do all your releasing stuff, it's harder to navigate around all of it. So do your tissue uh, release ahead of time. Then I look at the socket. Usually molars, if all that interceptal bone is still in place, you're at about 0.5 cc's. If you have a bigger infection, a lot of interceptal bone is missing, maybe use a one cc type of thing. And then multiple sites, two premolars, one cc. And if you're going across two molars, maybe prepare for one and a half to two cc's. We're always trying to make sure we save it. I do hydrate the bone with the PRP. So once you put it, the PRF or the PRP into the press, and it presses it into a membrane, you can pour out the fluid from that into your graft and hydrate it. If you guys aren't doing that, you can use something called fusion bone binder. You can get it from Woodland Hills Pharmacy. It's gentamicin mixed in with a bunch of other big old chemistry words like or It's not really that, but it's some long-ass word. And mix it all in. It adds consistency to the bone graft so it doesn't like flake and fall and move everywhere. And then you just get it all mixed up. So gentamicin is a good one for your grafts. We're finding out that clindamycin isn't good anymore. Prescribe antibiotics ahead of time for the patients. If they didn't get a pre-med on antibiotics and you're doing a same day, give them just two amoxicillin to take right then and there. If they have a penicillin allergy, go to maybe like a cefalexin, unless it's an anaphylactic type of reaction to it. Then you can go to maybe your cipro's and your quinolone family. Clindamycin and azithromycin, for whatever reason, I'm not having great results with clinda and azithromycin. Uh, with the z I had people with post-op infection, so I'm not a huge fan of that. But again, that's just, I haven't done lit review on it. It's just my anecdotal experience on those two medications. So then you hydrate your graft. And what you're going to do is the the assistant is going to bring it over on the spoon end of your periosteal elevator and kind of place it in an area where you can gently push it into the socket. A very common mistake I see at our courses is people, when they condense it, are trapping a little bit of air at the bottom of the apex. So you want to make sure you're packing this thing all the way down to the apex, not pressing so hard like you're packing an amalgam. I don't know if people learn how to do that anymore, but you don't have to like condense that hard, but push it all the way down to the apex and then build that thing up. So it's flush with the adjacent teeth and the bone levels on the adjacent teeth with socket preservation. You're never, well, there's never, never, right? So you're probably not going to grow vertical bone. So there's no point, and overfilling these things, A, the tissue has to grow. It has more runway to cover. B, it's just the body's going to kick those little particulates out, or you know, you're just going to have extra bone graft material and waste, quote unquote, profit on the case. So fill it level. And then if you have PRF, we're going to put a couple layers. I like two. So if I do a single site or double site, I'll draw two 10cc vials from the patient and spin it. So I have two layers of PRP I'll tuck that into the buckle. I'll tuck it into the lingual. And so you just don't drape it on the top. You have to actually physically make sure it's under, in between the bone and the periosteum, the tissue. And then we're going to cut a cytoplast membrane. We get our cytoplast from, I think, osteogenics. But honestly, man, cytoplast is cytoplast. So cytoplast membrane, you're going to lay it down. Those little dimple sides, there's going to be a smoother side and dimple side, the dimple sides face up. And so you're going to lay that thing down, tuck it again, maybe three to four millimeters under the lingual, three to four millimeters under the buckle. But keep in mind when you're kind of measuring that three to four millimeters, when you suture, the tissue is going to bunch up a little bit. So you don't want to have it so far under the buckle and so far under the lingual that it can kind of irritate the tissue. So you got to pick and choose and trim it to, to the appropriate size. And you also want to trim it in a way where it looks like an hourglass because you don't want it touching the adjacent teeth because you want the papilla to form in on the adjacent teeth also and you want to create a little bit of space for that to occur too. The only time I've seen this be a problem is on the mandibular lingual tissue. If you tuck way too much of that into the mandibular lingual tissue and it's a super thin area and a super thin biotype, you can see like a dehiscence of the tissue where you actually see the membrane sticking out of the tissue. So don't tuck too much, especially in that one area. Sometimes when you're tucking your membrane in, it flops everywhere. It can be super frustrating, or you try to suture it and you're, the tip of the suture catches the membrane and pulls it out. So, what you can do sometimes is just tuck it into the palate, run your suture through the buckle, then go through the palate and kind of do your figure eight. And then, lightly don't tie your knot, but lightly kind of approximate the tissue. And once the suture's in place, it's kind of draping over the membrane that's only tucked on one side then tuck in the buckle, and then cinch up your knot, and it ties it down easier. So you're not sitting there adapting a membrane just to screw it up with your suturing. You pseudo-adapt it in the beginning, suture, don't tie the knot, tuck it in, and then tie your knot, and then you can follow with the single interrupted redundancy of your suture if you really want to.
0: Now, let me roll you back a little bit. When you said a lot of people won't pack it apically enough and they'll leave a little airspace there, Mm -hmm. what happens when that happens?
1: It depends. I mean, uh, sometimes, depending on the size of the space, you know, it'll just, over time, it'll get corticated and turn into to bone. Other times, what can happen is, you know, this little area of granulation tissue will form. Or maybe you didn't cure it out thoroughly. And, you know, there's like some granulation tissue at the bottom. So, when you go back into place your implant, like at our uh, course we just finished for full arches in May, we saw this happen on this guy named Alex. And it was a full mouth of extractions. And he had... Soft tissue almost every single apex of uh, where we were going to place implants. I had to scoop all that stuff out, place our implants around those sites, and then we just regrafted the site. So it didn't really throw us too big of a curveball, but it's something just to be aware of if you're looking for attention to detail and all of that. But if you're placing an implant and that area fills with soft tissue, you know, it could cause problems with your implant.
0: Now, what are you doing postoperatively? As far as like, when are you seeing the patient back to remove the suture? What's with the membrane? Does the membrane resorb? Do you have to remove it again? How about that?
1: Yeah, good question. So I always tell the patients, everything I'm using here that you are seeing that's white will not resorb because I'm using a cytoplast membrane and I'll use the PTFE cytoplast suture over the top. And I'll use cytoplast sutures on single implants. I'll use cytoplast membranes on single site, you know, socket preservation sites as well. If I'm doing full arch, I use a resorbable and long-lasting, you know, PGCL suture. But for this specific conversation, I'll tell the patient, hey, I'm going to get you back in two weeks, and we're going to take your sutures out and see how you're healing. And I'll get you back two weeks after that or four weeks post-op, and we'll take the membrane out. And sometimes the membrane falls out, and you don't have to worry about it. Like, don't sweat it. If it falls out, it falls out. Everything is usually fine. But if you've tucked it appropriately on the buccal and lingual, they don't fall out. And then when you pluck the membrane out and you don't have to anesthetize them to get membranes out or anything, you just literally take cotton pliers and pull the thing out. You'll see all this immature tissue underneath it could bleed a little bit. You might see like little spicules of bone and some of the graft material and you'll just kind of flush it out and kind of flake it out and give them a good rinse. And I tell the patient, Hey, once we take your membrane out, you're going to bleed. It's not a bad thing. It's just immature tissue bleeds very often And then when it turns into long-lasting, mature tissue two weeks later, it won't bleed anymore. But sometimes after you take the membrane out, they're kind of worried about like, hey, why am I bleeding again? So address it before you pull the membrane out because you're always going to pre-address everything the patient's going to experience ahead of time. And what we found is when you graft and do this technique, there's less post-operative pain as well.
0: Nice. Now, what kind of
1: bone are you using? So I'll use like a, a cortical cancellous mixture. So the cortical bone will stay around a little bit longer. It's there as a placeholder. The cancellous bone or medullary bone or whatever training you had is a similar thing. That has uh, more of that scaffolding effect. It turns over more quickly. The body can use those nutrients and turn it over uh, and turn it into actual, you know, native bone more quickly. So you don't want to use all cortical. You don't want to use all cancellous. You want to kind of do a hybrid of that. And the thing is like, if you look at the literature, there's going to be certain indications for other areas, like people are using xenograft and tricalcium phosphate and all these other things. But for, the, for this conversation, your 90% of your bone grafting cases, it's going to be your cortical cancellous. I get it from Maxius. All the bone comes from the same place, and they all have different prices associated with it. And Maxius is actually a super reputable company super competitive on price. When I talk to different implant companies and we talk about their biologics and all of that, they're just like, yeah, Maxius, I don't know how they do it, but they do it. And it's the same thing. And no one has thrown them under the bus because they can't because Maxius' product is really good. So you can look at Maxius and kind of order your, your bone graft from there. And I use that product like almost every single day.
0: Awesome. Now, when you're, when you're curating the socket, are you doing any sort of like decortication of the socket or is just to cure out all the soft tissue?
1: Yeah, just curet all the soft tissue out of there. Sometimes it's like, you know, these really spindly narrow roots with this big old periapical radiolucency on them. Sometimes those you can't get to perfectly. Well, you have to get that granulation tissue out. So then put a vertical release on your flap, pull it back. And it's almost like you're doing an apico. You just stick your curette in through the buckle into that stuff and scoop it out through the buckle. And then when you do your graft, you just build out your graft over the buckle because you got to get all that stuff out of there.
0: Yeah. Now, what kind of fee are you charging for this?
1: So I just charge them surgical extraction. I think we charge 650 bucks for the bone graft. We charge 220 for the non-resorbable membrane, which is the cytoplast. And I think I charge 110 bucks for the, the PRP. But from a site preservation standpoint, whatever insurance will do to it, we'll, we'll decrease the fee on some stuff. But sometimes there's not coverage for the graft and all these other things. So if you're a heavy PPO office or you have these like horrible plans it's a way to actually get compensated a little bit better and more appropriately for the service that you're providing for people
0: now what would you say about these manufacturers that come along and they say hey we've got this plug you just shove it in a hole and put a suture in it
1: yeah i think uh, is it called like the osteogen plug
0: yeah osteogen i think foundation's another one
1: yeah okay so four wall defects yes i've heard you have to maybe use you know two of them sometimes to really kind of condense it within there. I haven't really done that technique. I'm more of like the, the old school use your cortical cancellous type of thing, because I get great results on that. But I've heard other people using the plug with success. So, you know, again, I don't want to comment on something because I eat my own cooking, essentially. I don't want to comment on something I haven't personally done. But I know guys who I trust and their opinions, and they've said it works well.
0: Yeah, I've heard some people say it works really well, and I've heard other people say it makes the bone very soft when they come back and do the implant. So it's like hard to get a good torque value.
1: Yeah, maybe you have to wait like an extra month or so, let it turn over a little bit more. But yeah, I've heard that similar things with the implant going in and not as much primary stability.
0: Now, let's talk about recreational drugs. You mentioned recreational drugs, which I think is a big blanket statement. What are we talking about that's going to concern healing of bone?
1: Yeah, so I mean, from a healing of bone perspective, you know, obviously they're saying like, yo, we're, I'm using like Coke and meth and all the heavy stuff. I would just send them to the surgeon. I know giving those guys epinephrine and, and anesthetic and sedatives and stuff, it's like all over the place. And I'm actually not sure how that stuff affects the bone more so than not. I mean, I'm in Colorado and like a lot of people, even like adults and farmers and, guy, you know, established people are, are smoking marijuana or whatever the case may be. So, like, the THC molecules will bind to the same receptor site that the anesthetic is going to, so they just won't stay numb or be profoundly numb during the procedure. So, I'm just warning them, like, hey, don't smoke ahead of time, don't smoke afterwards, be kind of cognizant of those things. And then I think a lot of alcohol consumption afterwards, we've seen a lot of alcoholics have problems afterwards. I don't know the cascade effect in terms of where the alcohol and the liver metabolism and, you know, ALT and AST levels from the liver are affecting bone growth. But I do, I do know it, it affects them from a healing perspective. So alcoholics beware and then any heavy, heavy drug users, I'd say send to the surgeon and let those guys deal with them.
0: Yeah. I was wondering, like, cause when you said that, I was like, well, what kind of rec-? Cause I'm in Illinois and it's, it's, it's the same thing. It's legal here. And everybody's like, Oh, I haven't done this since high school, but I'm gonna start doing it again. <laughs> like everybody's, everyone's smoking weed out here. It's just like everybody, you know, it's, it's gotta be worse in Colorado. Because, or, or I don't know if it's worse. It would be the right choice of word, but it's gotta be more prevalent in Colorado since you guys were like the trailblazers for the yeah. nation there. But, but yeah, yeah, I wanted to come back and ask you that. Cause I was curious myself. So what would you say as someone who is like, wow, this sounded really easy and now it just got very complex membranes, getting out the PDL. Now I might have to do an Apico. What is this? If someone's not incorporating this procedure and they're not sure they can do it, what do you say to
1: them? Yeah, I would say anyone who can pull a tooth and clean out infection can do this procedure. Obviously, if you don't feel confident in the beginning, just don't charge the patient for it, but do it and see how they heal. And see, I mean, my first full arch I did for free. My first veneer case I did for free. My first ortho case I did for free. Actually, I did probably several of them for free in the beginning just to kind of get my reps. So, you know, if you don't feel comfortable in your skill set or in the result that may or may not occur, just do it for free or at least charge them like your cost for the procedure so the practice doesn't lose on that end. If you want like live patient hands-on training, we have a course where you can come out to Northern Colorado. I'll actually do a discovery call with every attendee who comes through the course. We figure out where your comfort level is We have some people who are requesting super complex ones and other people who are wanting like the basics just to get the reps and muscle memory in their hands. So we do a discovery call and I match you up with the right patients and the right procedure mix. And you come in and you can do really almost any surgical procedure that you can think of at one of our courses.
0: That's awesome. That's the Colorado Surgical Institute. We will have a link in the notes and you guys can check that out. Well, thank you so much, to hair. We appreciate it, man. This was a really eye opening, and it was a good, good episode, and a good just overview of the ridge preservation. That sexy ridge, and (laughs) keeping it in your mouth.
1: (laughs) There you go, man. Amen. Hey, everybody. This is Doctor Dune from Colorado Surgical Institute. Just wanted to give you guys a shout out and let you know about the program. We have full arch surgeries. We have lateral sinus lifts. We have block grafting courses all done in one weekend with the whole digital workflow with photogammetry units, scanners, 3D printers, milling, you name it, anything regarded to full arch, we cover in depth. We also have a PGCA course. What that is, it's the postgraduate clinical accelerator course where we are going to be covering wisdom teeth, single implants. And it can be complex single implants with vertical sinus lifts. We'll also be covering full arch extractions with ridge reduction, bone grafting, PRP, suturing, and we also will have a course on socket preservation. So if you guys are interested in any of those courses, please reach out to us at Colorado Surgical Institute. The code is HERO10 for 10% off our courses because we love Paul Etchison and his podcast, and we're here to help.